1: Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off. Bluenile.com code LISTEN.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to orbodcast.com slash sofa today for details! Five,
3: four, three, nine, one. Wow.
2: This is the Starship Sover. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night, show number 49. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. So hello and welcome to Oral Delights, yes, a fun-packed bumper show for number 49, wow! Guess who we've got, main fiction, actually it's not main fiction, it's main audio player. a story by Gene Wolfe turned into an audio player. how about that? So just to give you a little idea of what's coming up in the show, Poory Today comes from Samantha Henderson. Flash Fiction is by a gentleman called Ross E. Lockhart with a story called Tech Support. No new titles fell through my door this week, so there won't be any new titles this week. Fact article is an article by Cory Doctorow, And the audio play is The Tree Is My Hat by Gene Wolfe. And it's actually put together and arranged by Larry Santuro. So please, there's a good introduction and a good outro. As to kind of all the workings of that Getting it together So please join me This Wednesday night For Oral Delights So we kick off first with Samantha Henderson and a poem
4: Hungry Some ghost stories By Samantha Henderson Some Is true. The ghosts in the kitchen. They gather in the kitchen sometimes. I can feel their cold bellies pressing into my back as I stir the soup, the risotto, curious as they strain to look over my shoulder. There are three short, middling, and tall, like a vaudeville comedy act. When it's very hot, and I have to use the stove, I close my eyes and wish for their marble-smooth coolness. But they never come then. I don't think they were people who lived in this house. Sometimes I don't think they were people at all. There's not that much personality to them. Only curiosity. The other place they gather is the bedroom right in the middle of the old chest of drawers that was damaged during the London Blitz. One, two, three. Perhaps that's where they're from. England of the 1940s, killed in the bombing. On rationing, and that's why they're so obsessed with the kitchen. They're hungry. The ghost on the porch. He's standing on the porch and I'm inside, staring at him through the rippled old glass of the living room window. His hands are in his pockets and he looks out to the street, his back to me. It's evening and I'm stripping thick paint off the redwood built ins. My hands are burning from the chemicals. I have to be careful not to rub my eyes. Later, "'I hear from my neighbor that the son of this house married the daughter of her house "'when he returned from duty during World War II. "'An airman, he survived overseas service, came home, married the girl next door, "'and was killed in a training accident a few months after the wedding. "'She also tells me he made the Adirondack chair that's stored in the garage.' I remember that his clothing has a look of the 1940s about it, but I don't know if that's a detail I've added in after hearing about the airman. I am, by nature, a liar after all. The neighbor died last year. She beat breast cancer twice, but the third time got her. During one of her treatments, she lost all her hair. She came over to try on some suits I was getting rid of. They were black and plain and sharp. And with her shiny clean head and lean old body and slightly pointed ears, she looked like a very modern anime vampire. She looked wonderful. I had a vivid dream about her about a year later. She'd opened up a bed and breakfast in the land of the dead. I don't know if that counts as a ghost. My Uncle's Ghost On June 17, 1958, several temporary struts reinforcing the Second Narrows Bridge in Vancouver, British Columbia, failed. A number of workers were killed when they fell into the water below. My uncle was one of them. My uncle was also the engineer who had designed the struts, and it was determined at the time that it was an error in his calculations that caused the failure. At the time of the accident, my grandfather in his bed in Sydney woke to see his son standing at the foot of the bed, reaching out to him. I don't know if that story was true, or one of the many, many stories that grew like wildflowers around the stories of my uncle's death, how he walked onto the bridge at the last minute, how he dreamed about it the night before, How he knew his figures were off and told his bosses, but they ignored him. Each story is a ghost in itself. He was the only son, the golden boy. We create ghosts because we are hungry for them, not the other way around. What ghosts have you spawned on your family, your children? generations yourself the dog painting the children's room and accustomed to dogs I step over the coiled figure of a black lab in the center of the room amid a cluster of paint cans and crumbled newspapers the rollers on the wall before I realize I don't have a black lab I roll on the thick cottage white and don't turn around because I know what I'll see. Paint can. Newspaper. Nothing else. The hair on the back of my neck prickles. I paint. Much later, my husband has transferred the home movies of the original owners to video. And there he is, a black lab frisking beneath the fig tree in the backyard. The tree in the shaky black and white images is a spindly thing. Now it's enormous, with a hollow trunk we're going to have to fill someday. It's eighty years later, after all. A few years ago, my daughters found a family of possums living in the hollow. Babies, all pink and fetal, with hair like bristles poking out of their soft-looking skin. The mother of all curved teeth like a mouthful of splinters. My dogs would pluck them like ripe avocados, and i pin them up until the possums leave. Will you forgive yourself? Eclipse I get up early in the morning to see Totality, the moon orange as a bruise, and find my neighbor in his front yard watching it as well. I don't know these neighbors and an immense beaten up craftsman with its neatly raked yard very well. There's a married couple with assorted adult children that come and go. I don't recognize this one, but he smiles and nods at me before turning back to the sky. And I think some time before we must have met. Perhaps I drove by and waved as he weeded the river rock constructs in the front yard. We watch companionably as the earth's shadow passes, and then I hear him say, Pop. What? I say. There's a point when the moon turns into a ball. Do you see it? It doesn't look flat anymore. It's three-dimensional, and it kind of goes, pop. I squint at the moon. He's right. It's round as a marble. You're right, I say, and there's no response. I turn to look, and he's gone. There are no lights in the neighbor's house. No sound of a closing door. The air smells burnt. As if the moon is an ember. I look for him in the front yard, but the man lifting river smooth rocks isn't him. I think about asking, but the subject never comes up. Who lives with you, breathing your exhaled breath, eating the smoke of your sacrifices? The minivan. When I shut the door and glance in the rearview mirror, in that millisecond before the light goes off, I see someone sitting in the back seat. It's a little girl with two blonde braids, I think. How's this? She was killed in a car crash, and the metal from that car was salvaged and melted and used in my Honda Odyssey, and somehow she's bound to the metal. Or... I parked for a while at the place she was killed, and her spirit just kind of moved in. Or. It's an illusion, made by the shadows cast by seed and belt and headrest. Or. She's one of the possible ghosts that cluster around our children. Every time they come home safe, the wraiths of those potential deaths we fear every waking minute. The car skidding out of control. The serial killer lurking around the corner. Cluster around them. Invisible. But we see them. We crave them. We eat them. A boy is dragged purple from the bottom of a pool. He gasps. He lives. But that branch of time where he didn't glows severed like those in photographs of cut leaves. There he died and haunts us. And so, over and over, until the ghosts that never were multiply between us, blood of our blood, flesh of our flesh, and we feed. My mother-in-law sat in the passenger seat for months after she died. I miss her very much. Sometimes. She comes into the kitchen. They gather in the kitchen sometimes.
2: Now that put nice hairs on the back of your neck, I think. Yes, Julie Davis, thank you. Great narration that was. Thank you very much for that. Don't forget, copyright is Samantha Henderson. Please pop over to Samantha's site, check out everything like that. We have some more poetry by Samantha coming soon. And do pop over to Julie's site and say hello. Always welcome emails. So we come on to Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction is by Ross E. Lockhart. Give you a little heads up for Ross E. Lockhart. His work has appeared in Satellite Fiction and Dyed Soup Online, which is forthcoming, and a handful of his stories have been performed for public radio on Page on Stage. You can find them at pageonstage.com. Narration today is by our good friend, Dale Manley. So without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents... Tech Support by Ross
0: E. Lockhart. Up, uh, uh. Hello, uh, Technical Support Services? Yeah, uh, this is uh, Dr. Sable in lab number 33705, uh, uh, Concourse AA35B. Yeah, uh, who, who am I speaking to? Oh, yeah, Cogswell. Yeah, I thought I recognized your voice. I, well, it's about this new sweeper unit. It appears to be on the fritz. What's it doing? Well, it's it's not sweeping, for one. Now listen, I've got two broken test tubes on my floor, and it's ignoring both of them. In addition, it keeps making a, a strange noise, sort of a wheezing, sniveling sound. Well, it's rather distracting, and uh, disrupting my work. Well, it's also been waving its forelimbs at me, chattering and pacing to and fro, and refusing, flat out refusing to do its job and sweep up my workplace. Oh, yes, yes, of course. I've gone down the list, uh, tried all the usual troubleshooting tips. I've shouted at it, I've offered it extra fuel, I've even tried ignoring it. No, no, nothing does the trick. It either sits in the middle of my floor or wanders around in circles, gurgling and moping along as it goes. Well, sure, occasionally it picks up its tools, its broom and dustpan. Oh, well, then it just shrugs and sets them back down again. It's getting in my way. It's wasting my precious research time. What's that, Cogswell? Sounds like a case for an applied technology solution. Oh, what's that supposed to mean? Oh, you want me to try kicking it. Kicking it? That's preposterous. How in the name of the galaxy is kicking the confounded thing going to make a lick of difference? Besides, shouldn't interacting with this thing be your job? Don't you have specialized tools, uh, behavior modification programs, ways of dealing with these units when they grow recalcitrant? Oh, I see. That long? That many? Oh, my. Nothing sooner than two cycles? Uh, I see. Uh. All right, I'll I'll try kicking it. Uh, Does it matter which foot I use? Now, that's no reason to get hostile. Yes, of course, my choice of foot doesn't matter. I'll do it, but I'll have you know that I abhor physical violence. Violence solves nothing. No, I, I'm not saying that it's sentient. It's the principle of the thing. All right, all right. No no reason to lecture. I'll kick it. Hold on. Well, I did it. I, I kicked it. Yes, right in its backside. No, it's not sweeping. Of course not. I told you that wouldn't work. What's it doing? Well, it's cowering in a corner, quivering. That's what it's doing. It's making a horrible noise. Yes, worse than before. Well, it appears that its visual sensors have sprung a leak. No, it's, it's not oil. It's something clear. It's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. it's one of the smaller units. Oh, I don't know. About half size? I don't see why that should make any difference. I especially requested one of the smaller ones so that it could better reach under my work tables. Uh, why? Are the small ones more prone to malfunction or something? Oh, well, I understand. The small ones are newer models with a less developed sense of polite ease. I could see where that could lead to all sorts of problems. Well, Why haven't we worked out all the bugs? Oh, that's Rossum's department. Well, that makes perfect sense, then. Rossum couldn't solve a quadratic equation if he had the answer sitting in front of him. You'd think in the amount of time we've been holding this planet, someone would have come up with a better solution than these biologicals for day-to-day drudgery. I know they're native to the place. I know they're cheap to maintain and that they breed quickly, but still... Disgusting creatures, inferior all the way. Uh, so you'll send over a replacement? That soon? Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, a mature one would be fine, at anything so long as the clutter gets cleaned up. Now what, pray tell, am I supposed to do with a broken one? You'll send over a disposal crew? Oh, well, that's fine. I was afraid I was going to have to take care of it myself. You know, it's getting so an android can't get any work done around here at all.
2: Don't forget, all copyright is Mr. Ross E. Lockhart. Ross, thank you so much for that, sir. Much appreciated. Get some more sent in, get some more scribbling. Everybody, start scribbling. Flash fiction, we gobble it up. And Dale Manley, fantastic narration there, sir. Please, if you want to drop Dale an email, by all means, go to the front of the site. So we jump straight into our fact article, which is penned by Cory Dockertrow. It is actually narrated by our good friend Paul Kajiji, but I sent Cory Dockertrow an email. I seen he had this kind of new book out of basically all essays he's written right kind of throughout his his time. And I thought it'd be nice to kind of sample some of them and actually just get them narrated. That kind of, I asked Cory Dockertrow if he could narrate them, but he, I guess the, the lad said he, just, he was away for four months on tour on, on the road, so. Paul Kajiji stepped forward and was very kind to narrate this. So we've got some more coming by Corey Doctro. This one is entitled, Sci-fi is the only literature on the internet people care to steal. There you go. Have a listen, and please, send in emails. Tell me what you think.
5: Science fiction is the only literature people care enough about to steal on the internet. Originally published in in Locus, July 2006. As a science fiction writer, no piece of news could make me more hopeful. It beats the hell out of The Alternative, a future where the dominant, pluripotent, ubiquitous medium has no place for science fiction literature. When radio and records were invented, they were pretty bad news for the performers of the day. Live performance demanded charisma, the ability to really put on a magnetic show in front of a crowd. It didn't matter how technically accomplished you were. If you stood like a statue on stage, no one wanted to see you do your thing. On the other hand, you succeeded as a mediocre player, provided you attacked your performance with a lot of brio. Radio was clearly good news for musicians, Lots more musicians were able to make lots more music, reaching lots more people and making lots more money. It turned performance into an industry, which is what happens when you add technology to art. But it was terrible news for charismatics. It put them out on the street, stuck them with flipping burgers and driving taxis. They knew it too performers lobbied to have the Marconi radio band to send Marconi back to the drawing board, charged with inventing a radio they could charge admission to. We're charismatics. We do something as old and holy as the first story told before the first fire in the first cave. What right have you to insist that we should become mere clerks working in an obscure backroom, leaving you to commune with our audiences on our behalf? Technology giveth, and technology taketh away. Seventy years later, Napster showed us that, as William Gibson noted, we may be at the end of the brief period during which it is possible to charge for recorded music. Surely we're at the end of the period where it's possible to exclude those who don't wish to pay. Every song released can be downloaded gratis from a peer-to-peer network and will surely get easier to download as hard drive price performance curves take us to a place where all the music ever recorded will fit on a disposable pocket drive that you can just walk over to a friend's place and copy. But have no fear. The Internet makes it possible for recording artists to reach a wider audience than ever dreamt of before. Your potential fans may be spread into a thin, even coat over the world in a configuration that could never be cost-effective to reach with traditional marketing. But the Internet's ability to lower the costs for artists to reach their audiences and for audiences to find artists... Suddenly renders possible more variety in music than ever before. Those artists can use the internet to bring people back to the live performances that characterized the heyday of the vaudeville. Use your recordings, which you can't control, to drive admissions to your performances, which you can control. It's a model that's worked great for jam bands like the Grateful Dead and Fish. It's also a model that won't work for many of today's artists. Seventy years of evolutionary pressure has selected for artists who are more virtuoso than charismatic. Artists optimise for recording-based income instead of performance-based income. How dare you tell us that we are to be trained monkeys capering on a stage for your amusement? We're not charismatics. We're white-collar workers we commune with our muses behind closed doors and deliver up our work product when it's done through plastic, laser-etched discs. You have no right to demand that we convert to a live performance economy. Technology giveth, and technology taketh away. As bands on MySpace, who can fill houses and sell hundreds of thousands of discs without a record deal, by connecting individually with fans have shown... There's a new market aborning on the internet for music, one with fewer gatekeepers to creativity than ever before. That's the purpose of copyright, after all, to decentralise who gets to make art. Before copyright, we had patronage. You could make art if the Pope or the King liked the sound of it. That produced some damn pretty ceilings and frescoes. But it wasn't until control of art was given over to the market by giving publishers a monopoly over the works they printed, starting with the Statute of Anne in 1709, that we saw the explosion of creativity that investment-based art could create. Industrialists weren't great arbiters of who could and couldn't make art, but they were better than the Pope. The Internet is enabling a further decentralization in who gets to make art, and like each of the technological shifts in cultural production, it's good for some artists and bad for others. The important question is, will it let more people participate in cultural production? Will it further decentralize decision-making for artists? And for SF writers and fans, the further question is, will it be any good to our chosen medium? Like I said, science fiction is the only literature people care enough about to steal on the internet. It's the only literature that regularly shows up scanned and run through optical character recognition software and lovingly hand-edited on darknet newsgroups, Russian websites, IRC channels, and elsewhere. Yes, there's also a brisk trade in comics and technical books. But I'm talking about prose fiction here, though this is clearly a sign of hope for our friends in tech publishing and funny books. Some writers are using the Internet's affinity for SF to great effect. I've released every one of my novels under Creative Commons licences that encourage fans to share them freely and widely, even in some cases to remix them and to make new editions of them for use in the developing world. My first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, is in its sixth printing from Tor and has been downloaded more than 650,000 times from my website, and an untold number of times from others' websites. I've discovered what many authors have also discovered. Releasing electronic texts of books drives sales of the print editions. An SF writer's biggest problem is obscurity, not piracy. Of all the people who chose not to spend their discretionary time and cash on our works today, the great bulk of them did so because they didn't know they existed, not because someone handed them a free ebook version. But what kind of artist thrives on the internet? Those who can establish a personal relationship with their readers, something science fiction has been doing for as long as pros have been hanging out in the con suite instead of the green room. These conversational artists come from all fields and they combine the best aspects of charisma and virtuosity with charm, the ability to conduct their online selves as part of a friendly salon that establishes a non-substitutable relationship with their audiences. You might find a film, a game, a book to be equally useful diversions on a slow afternoon, but if the novel's author is a pal of yours, that's the one you'll pick – It's a competitive advantage that can't be beat. See Neil Gaiman's blog, where he manages the trick of carrying on a conversation with millions, or Charlie Stross's Usenet posts. Scalzi's blog, J. Michael Straczynski's presence on Usenet while in production on Babylon 5, no less, breeding an army of rabid fans ready to fax-bomb recalcitrant TV execs into submission and syndication. See also the MySpace band selling a million of units of their CDs by adding each buyer to their friends list. Watch Eric Flint manage the Bayon Bar and Warren Ellis's Good Nature's growling on his sites, lists and so forth. Not all artists have in them to conduct an online salon with their audiences. Not all vaudevillians had it in them to transition to radio. Technology giveth and technology taketh away. SF writers are supposed to be soaked in the future, ready to come to grips with it. The future is conversational. When there's more good stuff than you know about, that's one click away or closer than you will ever click on. It's not enough to know that some book is good. The least substitutable good in the internet era is the personal relationship. Conversation, not content, is king. If you were stranded on a desert island and you opted to bring your records instead of your friends, we'd call you a sociopath. Science fiction writers who can insert themselves into their readers' conversations will be set for life.
2: There you go. Thank you very much, Corey Doctorow. And Paul Kajiji. You little tinga, thank you very much. The voice of Corey Dockertrow. So, this show is brought to you by Audible.com. And what's been happening over at Audible? They have something very special going on at the moment Metatropolis. Metatropolis is comprised of five interconnected stories. The first story, In the Forest of the Night by Jay Lake and read by Michael Hogan from Syfy's Battlestar Galactica, is available as a free download. And is accessible at audible.com metapod. And basically what it is, it's just like five authors of getting together and kind of created this Metatropolis universe. Jay Lake is in there. Tobias Backell, Elizabeth Bear, John Scalzi, and a gentleman called Carl Schrodner. These are some of the things that's been... And a hint of that, in Metatropolis, what if governments and nations were replaced by pixels and bytes? Would you join the network or go off the grid? Metatropolis is a world where big cities are dying, dead or transformed, where the once thriving suburbs are now treacherous wilds, where those who live for technology battle those who rather die than embrace it. It is a world of zero-footprint cities, virtual nations, armed camp of eco-survivalists. Metatropolis is the future, too near future, and it's the creation of five of today's most popular and cutting-edge science fiction writers, 2008 Hugo Award winners John Scalzi and Elizabeth Bear, Campbell Award winner Jay Lake, plus fan favourites Tobias Backell and Carl Schrodner. Together they lay the ground rules that have developed the parameters for this shared universe. Then they went off and wrote five original novellas, all linked but each a separate tale. So, actually, it does sound rather interesting, do you know what I mean? And if you listen to SF Audio, they give a kind of nice, kind of really in depth description of what's kind of going on in that world, this Metatropolis. So, please pop over there. So, now we come on to the audio player. First one, Starship Sofa's Oral Delights has tackled and what a play it is. I mean, I could go into kind of describing everything like that, but I just want, what I want to say is it is taken from a Gene Wolf story and how do you get Gene Wolfe, do you know what I mean, well, (laughs) didn't I drop Spider Robinson an email, you know, (laughs) just, oh, Spider, do you know any kind of big authors, and he sent back Gene Wolfe's email, so I just sent Gene Wolfe an email, and he very kindly pointed me to this idea, this story that's been, or this play that's been created about The Tree Is My Hat, and he gives a couple more stories as well, so, there you go. But I'm going to leave you in the capable hands, the very capable hands of Mr. Larry Santoro, because Larry actually put all this kind of play together, 2002 I think it was. So please, there is an introduction, there is the actual play, and then there's an outro. So it is just gripping, listening. And guess who's in this? Yes, none other than Neil Gaiman. So please, sit back, let Larry Santoro take you through Gene Wolfe's The Tree Is My Hat.
6: Hi, this is Larry Santoro. I adapted Gene Wolfe's incredible story, The Tree is My Hat, for audio presentation, and finally I produced and directed the first, and so far only, performance of it, which was at the World Horror Convention in Chicago in 2002. The production featured author Neil Gaiman in the cast, and the show was introduced by cartoonist and writer Gayan Wilson. Eventually, the script became a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award from the Horror Writers Association, and I can only thank Gene Wolfe for that. So, think of this as a special feature, a kind of making-of commentary track. Listen to this first part, how we did it, or what does it sound like, a helité opening a coconut. Enjoy the play, then come back here for the exciting conclusion. Or not. See you in a bit. To begin at the beginning, uh, we started about a year before 2002 World Horror, the convention here in Chicago. Gene Wolfe was set as guest of honor, and the woman running the con, Tina Jens, asked me to pick one of Gene's stories and get it up on its feet. Huh? I said. Well, it's something that's done, conventions, kind of uh, radio drama, like on radio, something like that. I had a theater background, and I was old enough to have listened to radio, uh, so sure, I said. Then, as I will do, I started getting earnest about it. You know, I said, I, I, I used to listen to radio drama, and, and actually, I, used to, I did some radio drama in, in Minneapolis. And when I was a kid, I, really, she said, well, that was that, something like that. I started going through Gene's short fiction, and I, and I kept thinking, cripes, he's good. No, He's really good. Well, now I'd, I'd known that, but something happens when you realize you're about to take somebody's really good stuff and stick your fingers in it and mess about with it. Gene's writing is subtle. It's resonant. It's so now you have it, now you don't. It, it's vaporous. Look at it cross-eyed and it just shifts color in your brain. It, it was doing so many things at once. And I kept thinking drama. Cripes, drama has to be there. It's got to be on the page, on the stage. It's got to be nailed down. An actor has to say something definite. He has to mean something specific. If he's equivocal, then he has to be definitely equivocal, if you know what I mean. When I was directing, I I used to hate actors' little faces looking up at me all squinty in rehearsal. um, what, What am I supposed to be doing? So... That's my job as an adapter, I guess. Uh, I have to make it real. I have to make it resonate and make it do two, three things at once, like Gene has done so brilliantly, just like that. Finally, I found The Tree is My Hat in Al Sarantonio's anthology, 1999. The story has a strong narrative line, and more important, it had a voice The central figure is a bureaucrat by the name of Baden from an overseas assistance agency. And the tale is told through Baden's diary. It's classic radio point-of-view stuff. goes all the way back to things like Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, which was a weekly 1940s crime series about an insurance investigator whose cases are revealed through his action-packed expense account. So, there's Baden. Saw a shark. Got out of the water. Fast. There, I've started this journal. <laughs> thought I never would. And it goes on like that. Add to that, the tree as my hat is set on an island in the Pacific, the Takanga Group. Good. Nice oral scenery possibilities, I thought. Surf, jungle, bugs, birds, drums. It's great. I love birds. Walking through the jungle, crunch, 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 through the forest, puts the audience right there. Then the story's themes: ancient gods, modern man versus the old ones. Maybe, maybe it's about. But I digress. What does an old one sound like? That came first. What does a man say who may be a shark, may be a god? What does he sound like? Okay, okay. But the point was: the tree is my hat. Was a story I th- I thought I could get up on its feet under an hour. I figure that it has to play in under an hour. There's a lot of stuff here. This is a rich layered piece as all of Jean's work is, but under an hour, under an hour became a kind of mantra. Okay. The story gets jumbled from here on, but it comes out right at the end. So hang with me. I wanted to have a look for this audio piece at the convention I wanted a classic 1940s radio theater look with an audience. I, I wanted the audience to see a group of actors on a stage, uh, a few stars perhaps, and all the actors are seated in the rear, a kind of uh, offstage look, but still they're in plain view. I wanted several mics up front, uh, a live sound effects guy off to one side, some musicians backing it up somewhere on the other side, maybe some live effects, a guy slamming doors, dropping crash boxes, wailing on, well, wailing on things and like that. And I, I wanted a sound engineer who could mix the whole thing. That's what I wanted to see. That's what I wanted the audience to see. To get there, first, I have to write a script. Then I have to find the sound, find the, find the the kind of magic of the place of the piece in the sound. I've got to cast the thing. I've got to find the technical facilities to get it all up on its feet and out there, and so many other things. Well, I started with the sound. An old friend of mine, Dave Fell, has a sound studio at home in his computer, a a Mac with guts and brain power up the wazoo. He's got software backing up a room full of hardware, mixers, mics, and things I have no idea what. And he loves messing around with sound, with visual stuff, too, but that's another story. And he was more or less available. More about that in a bit. Now, when I set out to skin Gene's story for sound imagery, one one of the key elements, and believe it or not, the hardest to find was the ocean. Sound effects, they're available. Effects discs you can use at your haunted house party at Halloween. They're available as hell. They're a couple of bucks is all. Sound for use where money may change hands. That's another story entirely. Dave has albums of the uh, commercial use effects. Uh, They're pricey, but when you buy them, you buy the rights to actually use them. None of Dave's discs, though, had rolling Pacific Island surf or waves breaking on rocky cliffs, as might be heard by a lone figure standing in the dawn of a failing night, watching the ghost of his dead wife bid farewell as she walks the water into the sunrise. You get the idea. And underwater ambience, the sound a character might hear while swimming in coral reefs like cathedrals, nothing there. And what did an island machete, a helete, sound like when it opened a coconut in one solid thwack? See, this is important. I want to I get it right. Sound in audio drama must be specific. It has to have character. It has to have context. Sound gives setting and location. It puts the audience in the same world, in the same room as the characters. Okay, this, this is an old guy talking here. I used to listen to Gunsmoke on the radio. Before there was television, there was radio, and Gunsmoke was on the radio. The show had a complete oral envelope about it. It was a total immersion experience, but it was subtle. When Marshall Dillon, for example, and Chester sat on horseback scanning the trail, you could hear the gentle creak of saddle leather when Matt turned to look behind him, or as the two talked, his horse might snort just once during a conversation, just to remind you where you are, or Chester's horse might tamp the ground with a hoof on stone, sand, prairie grass, or whatever, and that placed you right there in the environment. It was subtle, and it was lovely. Now, about that ocean. Luckily, Dave dug out a digital video he'd made on a trip to San Francisco. He had a beautiful shot of the Golden Gate high above the water where the waves broke on rocks below. He had long minutes of it. He fed the video soundtrack into the G4. He tweaked it, boosted, and stretched it, and there it was. Pacific Island, sunrise, ghost, the works. Well, okay, ghosts come later. They come with context. For additional wave ambience, uh, Dave went down to Lake Michigan, which was about 600 feet from his front door, and he recorded some pretty decent rollers and mixed that in. But that helité, nothing that sounded like a heavy blade slicing into a hard-shelled nut with a damp interior... Uh, Neither, too, could we find the sound of a giant god shark herding people across a half-mile of jungle trail toward the ocean. Or, Well, we'd figure something out, we figured. The script was coming, slowly. See, you don't simply pluck dialogue out of a story and end with a script. Drama is about what people do, not just what they say. I did start with dialogue, though. I, I typed it all, sketched in connective tissue, because this is a diary story. I had material I could bring from the background and put it into the foreground relatively easily. Uh, for example, where Baden describes what had taken place between another person and himself, I could always just make scenes. I wrote dialogue, made up what they said. Why not? I was a writer. And then I realized, God, I am writing Gene Wolfe dialogue. Oh, Crimenes. I was also deconstructing his work, where he described setting, I write, jungle sounds, surf on rocks. For uh, Helite Cuts Coconut, uh, well, the writer in me hoped that the director in me could find the sounds that would make Gene's written word come to life. And there I was, writing, unwriting, overwriting Gene Wolfe more intimidating than making up Gene Wolfe dialogue, I found myself creating whole scenes to bring the listener along quicker. And cuts. There was one wonderfully resonant section that dealt with Baden finding evidence of World War II-era Japanese soldiers who'd been left on the island as the war passed them by. Dark suggestions of terrible things as their years passed. It was wonderful stuff. I loved it. Then I cut it, even with the idea in the back of my head that it was important stuff. See, Gene's economical. He doesn't put things into a story unless they are necessary. But there was that mantra, under an hour, under an hour. That draft finished. I swallowed hard and sent it off to Gene, class act guy that he is. He sent back a suggestion or two, pointed out one relatively egregious mental hiatus on my part, and wished the project well. Called it my play. I was all tingles and blushes. I spent 30 years in theater. I was a director, mostly. I worked in the East Coast, then in England, here in Chicago, where I am now. I also did casting for theater, film, and most recently for ABC TV's All My Children. Most recently, however had been 10 years before this now in chicago theater a decade is a couple of generations removed and by now i knew so few chicago area actors that i suddenly found myself hanging in theater bars with my eyes closed listening to voices i started talking to old theater chums people i hadn't spoken to in five six seven years unfortunately the world is like that then there was music I wanted live. I wanted specific. Not rock, That's certainly. Not because I don't like rock, I don't, but because rock just isn't right. I wanted sound that was atmosphere, that was evocative, and I wanted live. I also had no real budget. Did I mention that, by the way? I had just a couple of bucks. And where was I going to find a damn live sound effects person? Casting. I also wanted a strong representation from the Horror Writers Association, and I wanted some stars. I wanted Neil Gaiman. Neil was going to be at the con, and I knew he was a great reader, so I wrote to him. Amazingly, he said yes. The part I had in mind for him broke out into three good scenes, all of them with the central character, Baden. We could work around him at rehearsal, then add Neil with a run-through, with cast and sound at the con. I've had a long-standing admiration for the writer P.D. Kasich, uh, Trish Kasich, ever since I met her at World Fantasy in Providence, Rhode Island. I knew Trish had had some theater background, uh, which I figured the actor playing the part I had in mind for her would need. Uh, One of the salient features of the role was a backbone-shattering scream she lets out as her character is herded by the shark god Hanga. If you're confused by all this, wait until you hear the show. You'll know what I mean then. So I asked Trish, again, yes, for Baden. An old friend uh, reminded me about Gary Simmers, a terrific local actor I'd used on some video projects several years before. He had a calm strength in his voice. Baden is a guy that's coming apart. He's barely holding it together. Wonderfully crafted by Gene, Baden is a really hard fellow to body forth. He's not an especially likable guy, but... One the audience has to feel comfortable with, feel at one with. And a lot of my work as the adapter director here would get done by the guy who is playing that part. And Gary, thank God, was available, and he said yes. John Labrizi. He was a joy to work with. He did several roles. Baden's boss at the agency works for. Uh, his father in law. He plays the island chief, and he plays a pilot. Again, I found John through a friend. Uh, This is how good John is. Uh, One of the key plot elements appears during a ceremony at which the island chief gives Baden a carved totem. Uh, The ritual of this thing is carried out in a kind of poem, kind of prayer, all delivered in the language of the island. Now, I dug up several passages, uh, poems, historical epics, biblical passage, that sort of thing that are rendered in phonetic Polynesian. Uh, We finally chose a section from the Book of Luke and used that as the basis for the rhythmic spoken patterns that the actors would do. Ultimately, John ad-libbed the ceremony using the Book of Luke as inspiration. Now, how many guys can ad-lib to poetry? I asked another old friend from my barely post-theater years, Steve Schultz, To play the pivotal role of Hanga, the little man who might be a dream, might be a god, might be a shark. Steve, at six foot four inches, has a wonderful capacity to toss his voice into different universes and small places. His Hanga sounds at once like a tiny old man, like a little child, like a bit of airy nothing. And it all comes off with the authority, somehow, of a god quite remarkable in the tree is my hat he also plays a san francisco witch a couple of island tough guys oh and he's also a member of rob robbins that's neil gaiman's character congregation conversing in the book of luke or not and that was it uh with a singer friend of mine playing baden's island lady friend we had six people 15 voices our cast Then I lost Dave Fell, my sound guy, and there I was. No sound engineer, no music, and I still had no idea of what a helitay sounded like lopping a coconut. And that's it for this part of this. Tune in at the end of the show for the thrilling conclusion.
7: January I saw a stranger on the beach this morning I was swimming in the little bay between here and the village dived down thought I saw a shark coming out of the staghorn coral, got out of the water, fast then I saw the stranger on the beach there, I have begun this journal, thought I never would okay here's how it was The day I got out of the hospital in New York, uh, I went to a little shop on 42nd Street.
8: Uh, Do you see anything y'all like? A nice-looking
7: saleswoman, one of those good-looking black women. I thought it might be nice to talk to her. I I said, uh, I just got back from Africa.
8: Really? How was it?
7: Uh Hot. (laughs) I came out with this notebook and told myself I'd not wasted money because I'd keep a journal, write down my attacks, what I'd been doing, eating, as instructed. All I could think was how she looked when she turned to go her legs, how she held her head, her hips. So here it is 31 January, setting up my new Mac. Who would have thought this place, this island, would have phones? I mean, There are wires to Kololahi, and a satellite dish from there. I can chat with people all over the world, and the agency pays. Talk about soft. Nothing like this in Africa. In Uganda, it was just a radio, and good luck with that. I had been full of enthusiasm for the work. The American Overseas Assistance Agency. It even sounded, well, useful. I was enthusiastic. People who work for the federal government almost never are. Sit down, Baden.
9: Here it is, your new posting, uh, the Takanga Group.
7: You're sending me to a Pacific
9: island? Well, it's an island chain. Uh, yes, Baden, pretty remote. Takanga.
7: Well, I thought you were going to fire me.
9: What? <laughs> we wouldn't do that. Well,
7: permanent sickly. You know, since Africa, since... Well, since the sickness.
9: Oh, no, no. But, bad. Uh, I'm not going to try to fool you. This'll be rough. This'll be rough. This'll be rough.
7: This'll be rough. Rough? This? This is nothing. This is a bungalow. Well, it's rotten floorboards, and it's been here since before the British pulled out, but I'm a mile from the village, less than half that from the beach, close enough that the Pacific smell is in the room. Rough? The people are fat, happy, and I guess not more than half are dumb. Try to match that around Chicago. Once or twice a year, one gets yaws, and Reverend Robbins at the mission gives him arsenic, which cures it. (laughs) Fish in the ocean. Plenty. A wild fruit in the jungle. And they know what you can eat. Coconuts. And they know how to open them. The mirror's still a shot. God, I used to weigh 200 pounds.
3: <laughs>
7: you skinny. <laughs> the king is a good guy.
9: We fatten you up. <laughs> I think he is.
7: He has a primitive sense of humor.
3: I hope. He's
7: the size of an NFL tackle. 400 pounds at least. He can take a jungle chopper, they call it a helite. open a coconut like here. I have a helite. I might as well try to open a coconut with a spoon. One February, couple of wonderful swims, didn't swim at all the first couple weeks. There are sharks, every so often you hear about somebody being killed by a shark, doesn't stop the people from swimming. Do not see why it should drop me. Good luck so far. 2 February. I write about the dwarf I saw on the beach.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
8: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50. Luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
7: I didn't before. I, I, I never got the nerve was afraid he wasn't real i used to see things sometimes in the hospital after africa i was afraid it might be coming back took a walk on the beach all right did i get sunstroke okay he was a little man shorter even than mary's father smaller than any adult in the village not smaller than a child too pale to be an islander, whiter than I am, he cannot have been here long. Reverend Robbins will know. I'll ask. Tomorrow. February 3. The Reverend was rehearsing his choir. Uh, when he finished, I, I, I talked with him. My lady, my lady. Uh, uh, Reverend? Uh, uh, Reverend? Yes? Uh, uh, could we speak? Uh, I wanted to ask your advice. Uh, personal, you know? Well, okay. Why don't we go to your place to
10: talk? I'd invite you for lemonade, but they'd be after me every minute uh, My my congregation.
7: He drove. The roads were terrible. It was hotter than ever when we got back.
10: There you go. Coke from a fridge. We must be civilized. Cheers. Okay, what is it, Baden?
7: A couple of things, Reverend.
10: Oh, call me Rob. Reverend over Cokes or, uh, And Rob is a lot better than my given
7: name. Mervyn. All right. Rob, I'm bad. It's my personal life. Ah. Well, there are two things, actually. Uh, things come in multiples... Uh, go ahead Okay One, I- I'd like to get back together with my ex-wife I-, I know you're going to advise me to forget it I'm here, she's in Chicago But I can email And I'd like to, well To put the bitterness behind us
10: Are there children? No, oh,
7: no, no Well, I'm sorry, I didn't intend that to hurt No, 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 that, that, that's all right No children Mary wanted, I didn't We talked He advised I listened. I decided to email. I will. I will tonight after I write it out. After I write it out here.
10: And the second thing bad?
7: Okay. Number two. I told him about the man, the small, pale man on the beach.
10: And you're afraid you were hallucinating again? Yes. Did you feel feverish?
7: When I saw him? No, no. no. Temperature normal
10: look at it logically, Baden. The population of Kololahi is over 1,200. There are eight villages that I know of. The island's 100 miles long, 30 wide. Yes. Twice a week, the plane from Cares brings new tourists.
7: Who almost never go f- the five miles from Kololahi. Almost
10: never, bad, not never. I accept your little man was not a villager. Was it me? Uh, of course not. Was it someone from outside, then, from another village? No, no. Why
7: no? The man, Rob, he, he was pale, white, whiter than I am. He, he didn't look right. His skin was slick, sheeted. Diseased? Well? Leprosy? I, I, I don't know.
10: Oh, I doubt there's a leprosarium nearer than the marshals. Uh, I doubt leprosy, Baden. More likely a pasty tourist greased with sunblock.
7: Rob... How can I say this? Uh,
10: Just say.
7: He looked at me. He smiled. He vanished. Uh, like, um... Like that. One second there on the rocks, the next not.
10: Okay. He dived off the rocks into the bay.
7: Uh, nobody there. I looked. I looked from where he'd been. And, and the other thing. No footprints. Anywhere, coming, going. Baden stopped playing
10: Sherlock. You couldn't see him after he dived because he was up to his chin in the water and the sun was glaring on the waves. N- yes. And footprints in sand are shapeless indentations. At, at best. Look, Baden, when you saw him, did you think he was real? Absolutely. And when was the last
7: time? I mean, your last attack? Bad one? Uh, six weeks. Mm, not bad one, then. Last night, but it was nothing. I mean, two hours of chills, it, it went away.
10: Oh <sighs> uh,
7: look. Rob was standing, ready to leave. He gave me the reverend smile.
10: That must have been a relief. No?: Yes. OK. Look, bad. The next time you have an attack, you come see me? Yes?
7: I, I will.: I mean it. Severe or not? All right.: I promise reverend, and then he was gone. Later, I emailed Mary. Dear Mary, I still love you. There. That's all I have to say, but I wanted to say it. I I was wrong, and and I know it. Oh, this is bad, by the way, but, but you know that from the email address. I hope you have Forgiven me. That was all I had to say that night. 4th February. I saw him again last night. He has pointed teeth. Uh, I was shaking under the netting, and he looked through my window, and, and he smiled. I told Rob as he asked me to. Dear Mary... I have been very ill, but I feel better now. It is evening here. I am going to bed. I love you. Good night. I love you. Bad. Five February. Two men with spears came to take me to the king. Am I under arrest? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. They were laughing. This time, the king wasn't. Baden, walk with me. Come. We walked. All of us. From the king's house, we moved through the forest. We walked among hardwoods the size of office buildings. A world in flowering vines. We entered a circle of standing stones in a clearing. The men built a fire. The king... Spoke. He told, uh, I, I don't know, a story. He recited a poem. Uh, and when he'd finished... He hung a piece of carved bone around my neck. It dangled from a thong. That was all. Then he put his arm around me and we walked back to the village. That surprised me more than anything. His arm around me felt like I was carrying a calf. Horrible. Horrible dreams. Swimming in boiled blood. It, it's February 6th. I, I haven't gone back to bed, but my watch says Wednesday. Too scared to sleep a- anymore. Logged on. Tried to find something about dreams. Stumbled onto a witch in San Francisco, first her home page, then the lady herself. Keep
11: your eyes and ears open. Good heavens, all signs indicate today.
7: And your little dog, too. <laughs> no, actually, she seemed nice. Got out the carved bone thing the king gave me. It's old. Probably ought to be in a museum. I should wear it as long as I stay here At least when I go out Don't want to offend him He might sit on me <laughs> On the bone Seems to be A fish Pictures Scratched into both sides More fish Man in a hat, etc Cord through the eye Wish I had a magnifying glass I wrote a long email to Mary, typing as it came to me. I told her where I am, what I'm doing, begged her to respond. After, I went outside and swam. Swam naked in the moonlit sea. Tomorrow, yes. I want to look for the place where the king hung this fish charm on me. Back to bed. February 6. Later. Morning and so beautiful. Why has it taken so long to see this beauty? Maybe my heart just got back from Africa. Palm trees swaying forever in the trade winds. People like heroic bronze statues. How small, stunted, and pale we must look to them. Took a real swim to get the screaming out of my ears. Will I laugh a year from now when I see that I said my midnight swim made me understand these people better? Maybe. But it did. They've been swimming in the moon for hundreds of years. You've got mail.
9: From Julius R. Christmas. Julius! Pops! Oh, thank God for email. Mary's Pops. Ha-ha! <laughs> he said... Subject, Mary. Mary went to Uganda looking for you, bad. She's coming back tomorrow. Kennedy. American Airlines 47 from Heathrow. I'll tell her where you are. Watch out for those hula-hula
7: girls. She went to Uganda looking for me. More dreams. Little man with pointed teeth smiling through the window. February 7th. So much today. How to begin. The dreams. I, I, I knew... Should I write this down? I knew in the dream that he hurt people, the man. He he kept telling me he would not hurt me. Maybe the first time on the beach was a dream, but I'd met him. In reality, his name's Hanga. No, 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 let let me do this in order. I found Rob. Funny how, I I went looking, not for him. Uh, I was sick. I went looking for the place the king gave me the bone. I tried to circle and come at it from the other side. I didn't want kids from the village trailing me. Lost. Three hours and worn out. Tripped on a stone and... Christ! And there I was. At the ashes. Where the king had stood. Where I stood. And there was Rob. Hello there, Baden sitting on one of the stones above and looking down at me. Hey, why didn't you say something? Wanted to see what you'd do. I was here before. The king brought me. He gave me a charm. May I see? Oh, I didn't wear it, sorry. Um, Anytime you want a Coke, come on over. I'll show you.
10: I see. The king knows you're sick, and I imagine he gave you something to heal you. It might even work that coming from you? God hears all sorts of prayer. I've been out in the missions long enough to have seen. Why did you come back here?
7: I wanted to see this place again. First, I thought it was just a circle of stones. Hmm? Then I thought maybe it was more. I was thinking... Yes? Of Stonehenge, okay? A circle of rock, but more. Look at the stars, where the sun rose. But? This. Yes, this is in the forest. Stonehenge is on Salisbury Plain. Is this some kind of temple?
10: It was a palace once, baby. Can you keep it to yourself, if I tell you something? Of course. I want to make this clear. These are good people now. They seem... Childlike to us, all primitives do If we were primitives ourselves And we were, not so long ago They wouldn't Can you imagine how they'd seem to us If they didn't seem a little childlike Yes The Polynesians, Baden, they're scattered all over the South Pacific Know that? Captain Cook was astounded When he first explored the Pacific He could sail for weeks, cover thousands of miles Yet his interpreter could still talk to the natives Incredible sailors the Polynesians. Did you know? They came down from Hawaii in sufficient numbers to conquer New Zealand. Historians admit it. The Maori themselves record it in their history. The distance is 4,000 miles.
7: But originally...
10: Uh, they're supposed originally to have come from Malaya.
7: But you think not.
10: There are a lot of reasons for thinking they're not.
7: Well, where are they from?
10: You wouldn't believe me. Try me. Okay. Think of a distant land, mountainous, buildings and monuments to rival ancient Egypt. Gods worse than... Gods worse than any demon Cotton Mather could have imagined. How long ago? After Moses, before Christ. Impressive, but... What am I getting at, right? This. They developed a ruling class in time those rulers priests and warriors became something like another race bigger stronger than the peasants they treated like slaves they drenched their gods altars with blood the blood of enemies when they could capture enough the blood of their peasants when they couldn't
7: and this went on
10: until the peasants rebelled drove them from the mountains to the sea then into the sea this race the rulers Sailed away in terror of the thing they'd awakened in the hearts of their own nation. Probably weren't more than a few thousand, maybe fewer. These people knew the sea. In the ancient world, only the Phoenicians rivaled them as sailors. These surpassed even the Phoenicians.
7: Interesting, but do you believe all this?
10: Doesn't matter, does it, Baden? My belief. It's true. I call these people primitive. They are but they weren't always. This, this place, this was a palace. There are ruins like this all over Polynesia, great buildings of coral rock falling to pieces, a palace and a sacred place. Sacred? Yes, the king was holy, the gods representative. That's why he brought you here, the king. And Baden, there is a temple. I've never
7: been able to find it. Do the people know where it is, the king?
10: Certainly the older people do. Once in a while, I catch a hint and a bleak reference. Not jokes. They make jokes about many things. Not about that. Certainly not about the temple. When it
7: was built, you see... Rob stopped for a second. He let the time fill him. Rob? Yes?
10: I was going to say, when it was built, it must have been evil beyond our imagining.
7: Evil? (laughs)
4: evil.
7: We separated. He took one path and I another. I returned to my place, picked up the charm the king had given me. Then I went walking again. On the beach. That's where I saw the little man again. Hanga, his name is. Hanga. I like him. Oh, his teeth are pointed. He was sitting. I had walked down the bay, and there he was, perfectly real, sitting in the shade of a young palm. Oh okay if I sit, too. Uh, the sun is frying my brain.
3: The tree is my hat.
5: Oh,
7: oh, oh, you mean the shade. But he didn't mean that. He bit off a palm frond, peeled a strip, then showed me how to weave the strips into a rough sort of palm hat, high crown, wide brim. Beautiful. This thing. This what? Oh, oh! The king gave it to me. Uh, a, a charm, I, I suppose. Does it? Um, how to say this? Uh, does this charm the wearer? Bring what good luck? Does it bring good luck? No, no, Malhoy. This, the palm leaves. This, Malhoy. Malhoy. Uh, that, that, that means strong, yeah? Malhoy. That was it. Except I told him to visit when he wants company. Uh, he told me, eat fish to bring health. To bring health, eat fish. But I never fear
3: terrors when I am with you never fear terrors
7: I have no idea who told him I was ill sometimes his skin it is rough hard much lighter in color than the skin of my forearm when I got up to leave he stood too it was no higher than my chest poor little man oh palm fibers malhoy they're not as strong as cotton thread, huh? Later, Rob told me "hanga" means shark. February nine. I wore myself out riding Thursday. I, I wrote nothing yesterday. N- nothing to write. I swam in the bay, Hanga's bay, but I can't write about it. Not in any way that makes sense. It was beauty Beautiful beyond words Tell the truth, I'm, I'm afraid to go back Afraid I will be disappointed No spot on earth can be as lovely as I remember it Colored coral Little sea animals like flowers Schools of live jewels Blue and red and orange fish I went to see Rob A woman was with him
8: she had cut her hand
7: While he treated her, they chatted in her language Did you really understand that? All of it?
10: Well, I did and I didn't I-, I knew the words, if that's what you mean How long have you been here, Bad?
7: About five weeks
10: Perfect I've been here about five years I don't speak as well as they do But I understand when I hear them it's not an elaborate language Are you troubled by ghosts? What? That was one thing she said The king has sent for a woman from another village She's coming to rid you of ghosts a Sort of a witch doctoress, I imagine Her name is Langitokua
7: Hell, the only ghost bothering me is my dead marriage
10: You still don't know when Mary's coming?
7: No Well,
10: she's got a long way to come Africa to the States, Chicago to L.A., there to Melbourne, there to Cairns, await wait for the plane to Lumpur.
7: And rests between, yes. I've taken that into consideration. Believe me, Rob.
10: Good. Bad. has it occurred to you your little friend Hanger might be a ghost?
7: What? Listen. And he told me a tale.
10: My first year here, on a day when there was not much to do, I decided to take a drive up to North Point... People said it was the most scenic part of the island. Been there?
7: Never heard of it.
10: It really is beautiful. It takes about two hours. The road goes only as far as the closest village. After that, a footpath. Then rocks stand above the waves. Cliffs overlook the ocean. Gorgeous. I stayed long enough to get the lonely, lovely feel of the place, make some sketches it was almost dark when I hiked back to the village to where I left the jeep driving back I saw a man from our village walking along the road as I said this was my first year and I didn't know everybody I stopped, we chatted a minute he said he was on his way to see his parents I thought they must live in the place I'd just left I offered him a lift he got in, I drove back let him out, he thanked me over and over I got out of the jeep to look at a tire that was worrying me and he he hugged me and he kissed my eyes I never forgot that
7: yeah the, the people here they're they're very warm-hearted
10: oh yes yes right you are but at Baden when I got back oh how to say this just say I was told the man i picked up had been killed by a shark Killed four days earlier Four days before I gave him a ride Before he kissed my eyes North Point, I was told, is a haunted place Where the souls of the dead go to make their farewell to the land of the living
7: Well, they lied to you No doubt
10: Or I'm lying to you Look, Baden, why don't you bring your friend Hanger here To see me If you can
7: I will. That I will. Not much of a chance of that. Not a bit. Henga has said he will not go into the village. My swimming. Christ, it is incredible. I never thought I was a strong swimmer, but I've been like a dolphin. Diving underwater, eyes open for what seems like two, two and a half minutes longer. God, wait till I show Mary. We'll have to rent some scuba equipment i have let this slide again. Need to catch up. Oh, uh, 11 February. Yesterday was odd. So was Saturday. First, I went to sleep full of Rob's ghost story and the new underwater world. Went to sleep and... My damn bureau had fallen on its face. Dry rot in the legs, I guess. Uh, A couple of drawers broken, stuff scattered... In the mess, I found a book. I never saw it before. The Light Garden of the Angel King, about traveling through Afghanistan. In front, uh, somebody's name, Larry... Date and American Overseas Assistance Agency. An agency man. Brought the book here from his previous posting. He must have left it. Why was he gone when I arrived? He should have been here. should have stayed a week or so to brief me. No. No one has mentioned him. Not his name, anything. There must be a reason. Was going to go to services at the mission. Bring the book. Ask Rob. Too sick. Temperature, 109. Took medicine. Went to bed too weak to move. And this dream. Somehow, I knew somebody was in the house. Sat up. There was Henga, smiling by my bed. I knock. You're not come. Sorry, I've been sick. I I said that, but, but I felt fine. In the dream, I was fine. In the dream, I said, can I get you a Coke? Something to eat? Let me see it. He held out his hand. In the dream, I knew he wanted the charm. Well, sure. Here. Uh, mm. He kept tracing the pattern of the little drawings on its side.
3: No tie? You take loose?
7: No, I-, I can slip it over my head. There's no reason to untie the cord. Want friend? He pointed to himself.
3: Want me friend?
7: Yes! Yes! Absolutely. I-, I want you to be a friend. Untie! Well, I'll-, I'll cut the cord if you want me to. Untie, please.
3: Blood friend. Blood friend.
7: D- all right, Hang on, I'll, I'll uh, untie. I began picking at the complex knot in the thong, and at that moment... Well, this was a dream, but there was someone else in the bungalow, some third person who banged on the walls. I, I would have gone to see who... But Henga held me strong by my arm. He has such big hands for a man with short arms. He is strong. In the dream, I got the cord loose. Give me, the, give me. the. When I did, there was one of those changes, one of those dream changes. He straightened up and was at least as tall as I am. Still holding my arm, he cut it quickly neatly with his teeth and licked the flowing blood. He grew again. It was as though some defilement was wiped from him. He looked intelligent, almost handsome. He cut the skin of his own arm, like mine, and... Now you... Do you want me to taste your blood? Mm. I expected it to be horrible. It was not. It was as if I had gotten seawater in my mouth while while swimming. We are blood friends now, Baden. I
11: shall not harm you, and you must not harm me.
7: The dream ended. And someone kissed me.
8: I am Langatakwa. What? The king sent for me.
7: She had a flower in her hair. She embraced and kissed me again. She does not know how old she is. I call her Langi. She says she doesn't know how old she is, and she's fibbing. She's about six feet tall, must weigh two, two fifty. She is maybe twenty-five, maybe seventeen. Eventually, eventually I asked about ghosts.
8: Oh, yes. There is a ghost in your house. He means no harm.
7: Look, uh, Lang uh, Lang Lengatakua. Leng, Lengi. Henga's visit. It was a dream. But it seems like I was sleepwalking, wondering about the bungalow. Delirious. The charm was where I left it on the dresser, but the cord was gone. I found it under my bed and tried to put it back through the eye of the fish. It would not go. It will not.
0: You've got mail.
11: The hounds of hell are loosed.
7: Oh, my San Francisco witch friend.
11: For heaven's sake, be careful. Benign influence is rising, so
7: have hope. Crazy if you ask me.
9: To Baden, from Julia's Christmas. Subject, Mary. How are you, Baden? Haven't heard from you. Uh, Look, have you found a place for Mary and the kids? She's on her way.
7: Kids? What kids?
9: Have you found a place for Mary and the kids? She's on her way.
7: Found a place? The old Puritan sent uh, sent a very long email back. The sunset is beautiful, Lanky. It is so beautiful here. Sunset, sunrise. We sat on the beach. We drank rum and coke. When the coke ran out, we drank rum and coconut milk. We looked at the stars, we talked, we we made love. We talked more, drank more, made love again. Okay, I put that down on this book. Now I have to figure out where I can hide this book so Mary never sees it. Look, Lange, uh, I, I expect a woman uh, soon, uh, a woman from America.
8: <laughs> American women are jealous.
7: Uh, I'll have to tell her that you are here as, as a nurse to help me stay healthy. Uh, do you understand this?
8: I will be your nurse. It is not good for a man to live by himself. A man should have someone to cook and sweep and take care of him when he is ill.
7: Yes, Lange, a nurse. <laughs> I will not destroy this book, and I will not lie in it. Nothing is worse than lying to yourself. Nothing. I ought to know. Um, that night, another thing. I saw a UFO. I guess this is another one of those, was it a dream thing to I think it was not. Somewhere that night on the beach, somewhere between me and the stars, it was sleek, dark torpedo-shaped, a single fin on its back, like a rocket ship in an old comet. It circled us two, three times, then it was gone. Made me think. The stars landed. They're like the islands are here. Islands only a billion times bigger. Nobody knows how many islands there are here. There are islands no one has been on, not to this day. At night, they look up at the stars, and the stars look down on them. They tell each other, they're coming.
8: (laughs) My name, it means Sky Sister.
7: (laughs) I guess I'm not the only one who ever thought like that. (laughs) I have found the temple. Rob's been looking five years. I found it in six weeks. God, but I would love to tell him, which I cannot do. I gave my word to Lange. We had been swimming in the little bay. We dove down. I I showed her the corals, all the things she has probably been seeing all of her life since she was old enough to walk. And she showed me the temple. The roof is gone, if, if it ever had one. The walls are covered with coral and sea creatures that look like flowers. You hardly see it unless someone shows you. But when you see it, it's all there. Long straight walls, the main entrance, little rooms at the sides, everything. It's as though you're looking at the ruins of a cathedral. One decked in flowers and bunting for a fiesta. This isn't clear, but it's as near as I can come. They built it on land, but the water rose, and it's still there. It looked hidden, not abandoned, too old to see, and, and too big. I will never forget this. One minute, just rock and coral, and the next, walls and altar. A fifty-foot branched coral, like a tree growing out of it. Then... An enormous gray-white shark came from the shadow of the coral tree He looked at us, worse than a lion, a leopard Worse, because it had the eyes of a man God! Oh, God! Langi! Are you all right? Are you okay?
8: Yes, yes (laughs) Yes, baby, yes We are good That shark means no harm No harm? Did you see him? Those eyes? Yes, yes No harm If he had meant harm, we would be dead, baby. Dead.
7: We picked flowers after. Then Langi wove wreaths of them and threw them in the water. Langi? Do you... Do the others worship there? Yes. Do you worship Rob's god in that place underwater?
8: (laughs) No. Oh no, there, we, we worship the sharp god, so he does not eat us.
7: I've been thinking about what she said. Let me put it down this way. Years ago, as, as Rob said, they brought other gods here, from the mountains, thousands of years ago, the old gods. They built their temple here, and later the sea came up and swallowed it. Then the old gods went away, but left the sharks to guard their house. Someday the water will go down again, and the ice will grow thick and strong on Antarctica once more. The Pacific will recede, and those old, those murderous old mountain gods will return. That's how it seems to me. If it is true... I'm glad I will not be around to. S- I don't believe in Rob's God. Logically, therefore, I should not believe in the old gods, either. But I do. It is a new millennium, but we still play by old rules. They are going to come. They'll teach us new rules. Or is that what I'm afraid of? Is
8: Baden? Baden? It's all right for you to know this, uh, this place under the sea. It is all right because we are us. But, Baden, you must not tell other moolies. Would you promise that?
7: Yes, of course. Valentine's Day. Mary. Mary has passed away. Passed away. That's how Mom would have said it. I, I have to say it like that. Print it. I cannot make these fingers print. these The other word. Yes. Can anyone read this? Lengi and I presented her with a wreath of orchids. She was wearing them. It, 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 it was so fast, so crazy, so much blood and Mary and kids screaming. Backtrack. Backtracking or, or, or give this up. Okay. There was a boar hunt. I didn't go, but Lange and I went to the pig roast afterwards. The king's spear, it was, he, he said, had pierced the heart of this boar. The feast was grand Pineapples and native beer, my rum, lots of pork. It was nearly morning when we got back here. And there was Mary. Mary in my bungalow, asleep with Mark and Adam, my sons. Good they were asleep. It gave us a chance to freshen up. Uh, Lange had prepared a fruit tray for them for breakfast. She had woven the orchids I had picked. I made the coffee.
11: Oh, 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 surprised to see me.
7: She was older than I remembered. Had the start of a double chin. Delighted. But Pops told me you'd gone to Uganda and, th- and that you were on your way here.
11: To the end of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> I never realized Earth's end would be as pretty as this.
7: Pretty. The beach will be lined with condos in another generation.
11: Then let's be glad we're in this generation. Mark, Adam, take in everything as long as we're here. You'll never get another chance like this.
7: Well, you'll you'll be here a long time, I hope.
11: Really? I thought you and uh, What?
7: Oh Langatoka?
11: Uh Langie, yes. You and she Oh no
7: no. Was I ever honest with you, Mary?
11: Certainly. Well often
7: i wasn't and you know it so do i i've got no right to expect you to believe me now but I- i'm going to tell you and myself god's own truth it's in remission now Langie and i were able to go to a banquet last night and eat and talk to people and enjoy ourselves but when it's bad it's horrible I'm too sick to do anything but shake and sweat and moan, and and I see things that, that aren't there, I...
11: I... you don't look as sick as I expected.
7: I know how I look. My mirror tells me every morning while I shave, I look like death in a microwave. It's liable to kill me this year. If it doesn't, I'll probably get attacks on and off for the rest of my life, which is apt to be short.
8: coconut milk
7: the boys seemed pleased
8: this is the hell of the...
7: she showed them how to open the green coconut with one chop. Mary and I watched that's when I heard the surf that was the first time the sound of waves had ever reached all the way to the bungalow
11: I rented a range rover at the airport I saw I wouldn't have known where you were but we met a native a very handsome man he said he knows you. He came along to show us the way.
7: I knew from the boy's expression that something was wrong. He wouldn't take something money. Something seriously wrong.
11: He wouldn't take money. Was I wrong to offer him? He didn't seem angry. Oh, no,
7: no. At that moment, I would have given anything to get the boys alone. Would it have been different if I had. When I read this, when I get to where I can face the, the thing, I, I will miss how fast it was and how horribly fast the whole thing went. An hour, less, between the time Mary woke and when Langie ran to the village to get Rob.
11: The man thought you were down at the beach and wanted us to look for you there. And then, but I said I was too tired.
7: Down on the beach and wanted us to look for you there and then. But I said we were too tired. That is all now too much. I I can barely read this left-handed printing. My stump aches from holding down the book. I'm going to go to bed. I'll cry. I know Lange will cuddle me like a kid. Again tomorrow. 17th February. Hospital... Has sent its plane for Mark. No room for us. Doctor, a lot more interested in my disease than my stump. Felt Rob did a fine job with the stump. We'll catch the plane for Cairns on Monday. I should catch up. I'm going to steal Rob's Jeep tomorrow. He'll not lend it. Does not think I can drive. It'll be slow, but I know that I can.
9: Uh, We're uh, having a little difficulty with engine number two Uh, We'll have her up to speed in a few uh, (laughs) Nothing new to us island hoppers
7: 19 February In the plane Parked on the tarmac Something wrong with the engine Nothing, the pilot says Have I the nerve to write about it now? We'll see Mary was telling about her guide, how good-looking, all the things he had told her about the islands, things I hadn't known myself. Then...
11: Oh, here he is now.
7: There was nobody. Nobody Langy and I or, or the boys could see. I, I talked to my son, Adam. My son, Adam. I have to get used to that. I, I have a son. I, I talked to my son when it was over. While Rob worked on Mark and Mary, I had a bunch of surgical gauze and had to hold it as tight as I could. There was no strength left in my hand. Adam said when they were trying to find me when they had arrived, Mary had stopped the car and the door opened. The door to the rover opened by itself. Mary made Adam get in the back seat with Mark. The door opened by itself. That is the part he remembers most clearly, and the part I remember, too. After that, he said his mother talked all the time to somebody he and his brother could not see or or hear. Back in the bungalow... I I really cannot know how to say this, or or, or how to remember it. Back in the bungalow, Mary was saying... Oh, here he is now! There. (laughs) There, in the bungalow, just for an instant. For an instant, there was the shark, as big as a boat, and wind, like a current in the ocean, blowing us. It blew us towards the water. The shark was not swimming in here. I know this will sound mad, but he was not. We were not underwater. We could breathe and walk and run as he could swim, although not nearly so fast. Worst of all, he came and went. Came and went. It almost seemed that... Running, fighting him by flashes of lightning, and sometimes he was Hanger, taller than the king, and smiling at me, smiling at me while he hurted us. No, the worst thing was that he was hurting everybody but me. Drove him down to the beach like a dog drive sheep. Mary, Langy, Adam, Mark, and he would have let me escape. I wonder sometimes why I did not escape. This was a new me.
0: when I couldn't see them. Henga! You're breaking our agreement, Hanga! Hurting my wives and sons! It hurts me! Do you hear me, Henga? I don't think you understood me.
7: The old gods are wise. the king said that they still there are limits to their understanding.
0: I ran for Langis Helite. I-, I charged, terrified!
7: I, I don't remember. I only remember slashing something! Something huge that was and was not there! Windblown sand, then up to my arms in foaming water. Cutting, stabbing, and the shark, the hammerhead with my knife and my hand in its mouth! We got them all out. Langi and I. Mark has lost his leg. Jaws three feet across closed on Mary. It was Hanga himself. I'm sure I think he could only make one of us see him at a time that's why he flashed in and out like lightning he is real God knows he is real not physical the way stone is in other ways I I do not understand physical like and unlike light and radiation He showed himself to each of us each time for less than a second. Mary. Mary wanted to have children. So she stopped the pill and did not tell me. She told me that finally. She told me when I drove Rob's Jeep out to North Point, the place of ghosts. I was afraid. Not afraid of Hanga. There was that too, of course, but afraid she would not be there on that point, at the place where the ghosts say farewell. I waited at the edge of the cliff. Baden. She came when the sun touched the Pacific. The darker the night, the brighter the stars, the more real she was.
11: I wasn't going to get back together with you. Then I heard how sick you were in Uganda. I thought the disease might have changed you.
7: It has. We held each other until the stars became dim and first light showed in the east. She told me about the children. Then...
11: Baden. Bad. I have to go.
7: She walked over the edge. Walked north. The sun to her right, she got dimmer and dimmer. I dressed and drove back, and it was finished. That's the last thing Mary ever said to me. Spoken days after she died. We're airborne at last. Mary. Mary Starlight. What does it matter? What does it matter about people at the end of the earth if you cannot be good to your own people? Most of all, to your own family. Mary. The stewardess is serving lunch. For the first time since it's happened, I think I'll be able to eat more than a mouthful. Lange and I will take Adam to his grandfather's. It will come back and stay with Mark until he is well enough to come home. The plane's full. Many people. News of the shark attack is driving them off the island. I can print better with my left hand now. I should be able to write eventually. It's gone. But the back of my right hand itches.
0: I wish I could scratch it.
7: Here comes food. An engine has quit. Pilot says no danger. He is out there, swimming beside the plane. I watch him. Right now, he's disappeared. Disappeared into a thunderhead. The tree is my hat.
6: back. I hope you enjoyed the play. And this is How We Did It Part 2 or Orson Welles and the Pickle Jar of Doom. He was a cliché, my sound man. There he wasn't. On the phone, Larry Youngberg is a dead line. You speak, he doesn't. You ask, he thinks. You say, "Hello," he waits. "'Are you there?' you say. Uh "'Uh-huh,' he breathes. "'What?' you say.
3: Mm "'Mm-hmm,'
6: he says, with a touch more breath. "'Well, can you do the show?' you ask. Uh "'Uh-huh,' he says. "'Eventually.' Now, this is the guy who is going to save my ass. He's going to perform the technical magic that will bring the world horror 2002 radio theater production of Larry Santoro's adaptation of Gene Wolfe's The Tree Is My Hat into the world's full hearing. To recap, I had lost my audio guy, my chum Dave Fell, to a work conflict. Oh, cripes. Okay, so the tree as my hat has nobody to do the live multi mix for the audience. It has no one to do the live effects. not a soul to record the thing. Add to that, I know nothing about technical level sound, so I can't do it. I don't have the equipment to do it. I don't know how to ask intelligent questions about how to do it. We are screwed. Now let's back up. I have my kitchen sink script version of Gene's wonderful story. I have a cast, the concept for a cast anyway. It would not, in fact, be an ensemble until the performance on Saturday, April 13th, 2002. That evening would be the first and the only time actors, musicians, effects people, and engineers would be together with an audience at one time to do the show. I had a disc with bits of sound Dave and I had rounded up, tweaked, and burned. I knew what the thing was going to look like for the live audience. I simply had no idea what it would sound like. Now, you have to figure how a show sounds has got to be important for radio drama, right? Right you'd be. And I did not have the oral image of the show. Not yet. I got a break. From time to time, I do public readings, uh, stories, poetry, that sort of thing. This is of interest here only because one frigid, snowy Sunday night, I read at a new spot in Chicago, and there I heard the sound of the show. It came from a guy named Barry Bennett. Now, Barry was doing vocals and accompanying himself on a keyboard uh, and an instrument I'd Never seen a device that turned percussion into sort of magic thunders, waves, jungle sounds, distance, depth, places you didn't want to go. It was Takanga in a box. Yipes. Milk Baby was and is Barry's musical identity, and I bought a Milk Baby compact disc, and I talked to Barry after the show. Did he ever score a dramatic presentation, I asked. Yes, would he be interested in doing this one? I described the show. He stared. I mentioned Neil Gaiman. What, the Sandman? Neil Gaiman? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Star power. Well, was he, Barry, available in person on Friday, April 13th? Ah, oh, shit, man, nah. Barry had a gig. Shit indeed. Well, could we use a little of a Milk Baby CD for the show? Well, sure, he said. Just give Neil a copy. Well, that was part of the problem solved. Barry's work pointed me toward the kind of sound I was listening for in my imagination. While recorded Milk Baby was better than no Milk Baby at all, I still wanted to have as much of this show as possible created live as it happened. See, I did not want actors to work to fit within a pre-existing score. I wanted our music to riff off the spoken word. I wanted the actors to be fed by the life of the sound. Speaking of live, I also wanted to see Baden's dresser collapse in the night. It's a key moment in the script, if you remember. I wanted to see the sound dude do that hellate chop, that one skillful thwack that breaches the hairy coconut. I wanted to see Hanga weave that hat from those palm trees. The tree is his hat, after all. I also wanted the audience to hear, to not have sound overwhelm the dialogue or have words, drowned effects, or music swallow everything— That meant finding someone who could mix the character mics with the effects mics, with the music mics, with the whatever mics, and make it all blend. So, who the hell does live radio sound anymore? Remarkably, there are people. More remarkably, some of them are in Chicago. Through luck, and through hanging in bars where theater folk hang, I heard about Larry Youngberg, the guy whose quiet ways scared me at the beginning of this little piece. Meeting Larry trounced my fears. He's a...
5: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.